Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. It's a pretty ambitious goal to write an epic poem in a day. Bernadette Mayer's Midwinter Day, an epic about the daily routine written on winter solstice 1978, is like no other project that I know of, except for Canto Diurno Numero Uno. That 1986 poem by Pierre Jory is also a very ambitious effort to make a poem, quote, as large as I could make it. That he'd call it a canto is evocative of Ezra Pound. That he can talk about it 36 years after the fact is our pleasure. Pierre Jory was born on Bastille Day in 1946 in Strasbourg, France, and raised in Luxembourg. He's moved between the U.S., Europe, and North Africa for 55 years, published more than 50 books of poetry, essays, anthologies, plays, and translations. His translations of the poetry of Paul Celan are a tremendous gift to world literature, as are his collaborations with Jerome Rothenberg on editing the anthology Poems for the Millennium, Volumes 1 and 2. Pierre, a real pleasure to have you here today. Great pleasure to be here, Paul. I think getting started, maybe reading from the poem, I really like the 9 a.m. section. So maybe we could start with that and you could read for as long as you care to and and then we'll talk about it. Okay. Ah, 9 a.m. The newspaper dead, the paper picked up, taken home, like going to church on Sunday, long ago, as regular, as much of a rite. The double ritual of reading, of writing, take notes, See how we can enter that world, your world too. In Troibo, no altar, but what rolled off the presses, heavily inked iconography of random death. If to pray is to give thought intensely, then that is what I'm doing right now. Unalienable format, too large to be cut out and glued into a notebook. This dead will have to stay where it is on the front page tomorrow's dustbin liner. This is a Reuter dead from Rome, young woman in heavy winter coat, wool cap with studded rim pulled down to a half inch above eyebrows, face pressed three quarters towards me to the asphalt, ear to the ground as if listening for a distant tremor and approaching train of far off revolution or simply for what the earth has to tell her. Whatever it is, she can no longer hear it. Vilma Monaco, 28, carrying a 38 in her hand and a German MP40 in her bag. 15 spent cartridges littering the ground, the pointless numbers. Do what you want. They all spell death. Vilma, surrounded by numbers, caught in a web like a medieval hex, killed in Rome, trying to kill a Roman politico who played with bigger numbers. She, a member of the Fighting Communist Union, a splinter group of the Red Brigades, offshoot, born to die out of the second split of the BR in Paris in 1984. Call afraid where a bullet went through, I think. I would like to put my finger there, to shake you, death of Europe, by the shoulders. Get up, it was all a dream of winter, the minor corrupt Christian Democrat political, not worth it, wrong strategy. So who am I to say despair is ever wrong? cold-blooded. She is wrong because she is dead. One of us is dead. One more skull to be strung on a chain we all carry around our necks. But that too, too romantic, as gooey as her own harsh voice. 
Vilma Monaco, a name Hollywood might have picked. This is hello and goodbye, Vilma Monaco. Vilma Monaco, you leave me here with only an introibo, with no credo, which is all you had. You leave me here with your name only, with your smudged inky death mask, already a 24 hour dead. Monaco, Vilma, your face pressed against the street, listening to someone I cannot hear. And that's a prose section, and then you go into the poetry, and um, it's it's really sort of setting the tone after that at 11 a.m. So, uh, but there's much to discuss. Um, one of the questions I had is, what is it like to talk about a poem that's 36 years old? <laughs> well, it's interesting to read its coverage, you know, because it's true that I have not read it in a long time, and just reading that piece, which, yes, is, is annotated as a prose piece, I was, however, kind of after a few lines into a rhythm there that said, oh, yes, I like this. There is a kind of beat going on that uh, I can pick up on and I can get back to some of the rhythmic energy that obviously, you know, uh, um, that incident, that discovery in the newspaper that morning uh, gave me. So, uh, it was pleasurable. It worked for me. And my question, of course, to somebody else, to you or somebody reading it now would be, um, what does that whole thing ev still evoke to you at this point? You know, I can think of all my left-wing allegiances, uh, you know, all the discussions for years as to uh, should uh, there be a revolutionary fight that would go as far as the Brigada Rosa, as the Red Brigades, and so on and so on. So it would be interesting to discuss that with somebody from the current generation, you know, uh, uh, does this make any sense, <laughs> you know? And I don't want to have it sort of as making sense there, you know, the sense is to be discovered by whoever, whenever, wherever they read it. Well, who is it that said poetry is news that stays news? Hello. <laughs> you know. um, and, and speaking of that, um, tell us uh, about how it was the death of Ezra Pound that was the first spark of inspiration that became the poem, although he died, what, 12 years or so, or maybe four, yeah, 14 years. That. Yeah. I have a poem from the year of his death in another London address. And that it's funny because the desk just came to me and where I wrote it and the morning I wrote it. And it was, an, I speak to that fact that Pound has just left us and that this may block writing for a while, you know, in some, in some strange way. I said, well, I don't know if I can uh, go on writing. Pound was, of course, very, you know, essential for anybody from my generation in terms of trying to think through what a poem could be beyond our classic lyrical little one pager, you know, that fits on a quarter page in the New Yorker. If you want to go that way, I don't, you know, or that fits into one of our 75 page uh, creative writing press books, you know. Already back then, from relatively early on, I wanted to find ways of breaking down those forms in order to find some kind of open form into which all kind of materials could come. 
And one way that I thought of doing it, and that kind of, I think, goes to the, the idea of the Canto Giorno Directi, was rather than have a traditional formal structure, you know, meaning a line structure like the sonnet, you know, so that many lines, you know, or that even that many pages, if you want a, a longer thing, but that has that kind of coherence was to switch from that, if you want, spatial thing to a temporal thing. Why not use a fixed time inside of which to write whatever, you know, comes in? And the day seemed the right thing for me. One, because I'm somebody who, um, I'm a morning person. So my tendency is to get up at five, have breakfast and sit at my desk at 5.30 and then, you know, maybe work six hours or five minutes. I don't know, you know, whatever, you know, whatever happens. And so the idea of the day of a 24-hour structure that was open in that sense, into which all kinds of things could come, became an interesting way of trying to structure some kind of, you know, some writings. And uh, I wanted it to be a canto diurno, because not only do I get up early, but my sense was that, you know, the lyrical poem is so often hung up on the night, on what, you know, what, ha you know, uh, what happens. Uh, I wanted the light of day to be part of that daily work, uh, you know, the poem also simply as what you do during your daytime, not in, you know, a lost moment late in the evening before you fall asleep or whatever, you know. Whatever romantic notion that, yeah, uh, yeah. that we have to abandon, right. Um, tell us about the epigraph. Huh. Uh, well, I repeat, I repeat for Bataille that question, why community? The answer is given rather clearly. At the basis of each being, there exists a principle of insufficiency, of incompleteness, really, of you know, insufficiency. Uh, I was that was Blanchot. Uh, I think in '86 I was translating the Blanchot book that Station Hill Press published. Yeah, yeah, they published that I think in '87. So I was very much into reading Blanchot, and again that notion there, I think it was very consciously put there in the sense that community is very much part of that whole that whole sense of those cantos, rather than the, again, rather than that individual romantic poet, you know, by himself, you know, who's of course been abandoned by his lover, you know, which gets him da 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 da, uh, you know, all that stuff, you know. Uh, uh, that notion of community is, was, was central to what can we do today? Remember, this is the eighties, you know, I come up in the sixties, come to America and then live in England. And the idea of the 60s has by now very much dispersed. But community, be that hippie communes with Gary Snyder in uh, Kitsikittle, uh, you know, or whatever, were part of that lore or that, that you know, uh, that thinking uh, of my generation. But then being back in to some extent in Europe and, you know, being kind of in between my continents, uh, you know, however stuck on my continental drift, 
community and the way that Blanchot and Georges Bataille and uh, a number of people thought about it seemed a very interesting way of dealing with multiplicity. The next book, by the way, this, this, uh, 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 that book of interviews that is coming out in the fall uh, is called Always the Many, Never the One conversations in between places and so on. Uh, and, you know, that, so that is something that has been with me very strongly as what can a community be and how to think community. Echoes again of Charles Olson's Polis. That's right, that's right, uh, his Polis. And by the way, this morning, the first thing I saw when I uh, checked uh, Facebook, uh, somebody just put that movie, City is Polis, you know, uh, by Henry uh, Farini, up, uh, by Henry Farini, up. So, if you go there today, you have it. It's there, and you can watch the whole movie. And it's great, you know. Yes, it is that whole, all those notions that come through. Polis is this, mm -hmm. yeah. In Canto Diurno, number one, you time the different sections of the poem. This gives us some sense of how you wrote. But you know, for a morning person, you're up at twelve forty-five a.m. <laughs> writing so um, of course that's 36 years ago so we all had more energy back then but, uh, <laughs> oh yeah um, no that's true but I, I went to i must have gone to sleep about one o'clock oh, no no three good lord i hadn't even looked yeah two o'clock and then up at seven so two to seven that's five hours that was my regular sleeping habit <laughs> i see i see uh, wow. So, so what was your goal for the poem besides thinking big? Did you have any uh, sense of that or, or was it wide open 24 hours and see what happens? It was, it was wide open 24 hours. See what happens. What can I do, you know, uh, and not even pushing myself to sit at the desk all the time. You know, I have used this kind of notebooks way back. But remember, there used to be these black ones that we had in the 60s and 70s. But that is always the, 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 the daily writing, you know, goes, goes into those. And so those poems came about that way with fountain pen. I like ink pens. I like writing, you know, into that kind of notebook. And so doing that with dating every entry was kind of a, a very simple and, and, and easy way, you know, diaristically, if you want, but there was clearly, as I was beginning to do it, all of a sudden a sense, I can't remember exactly when, oh, here we are. This is a process that I have been wanting to explore. And uh, let's see what it, what it is after the 24 hours are over, you know, without for, for um, building or anything, you know, letting the process take care of it, uh, go in there. It's fascinating. I'm wondering where those uh, journals are. They're in an archive somewhere, I'm guessing. Yes, I think they are now. I'm guessing too, because I'm very bad with that stuff. But yes, a lot of them are available uh, at the Lilly Library in where did Clayton, Indiana. Where did Clayton Eshelman go to college? They have a very, very good archives, not just for, for poets, Penn but, State? Is that Penn State? No, 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 no. It's, it's in the Midwest. They are very interested in translators of poetry and in poets. So they have, for example, Corman, Sid Corman's archive, a lot of Eshelman's archives. 
And so I thought that, you know, given that translation is one of my sidelines, that would also be a good Bloomington. I was just going to say, I found, I found it out there. So a reason, a re yet another reason to visit Indiana. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know how, if, if at all, how the poem helped you better articulate what you've come to call nomad poetics and, and how you would describe that stance toward poem making? Huh. Well, I think it is an instance thereof. You know, the traditional lyric poem is kind of a wham, a momentary insight, you know, slightly expanded by images, you know, but it is that, that contained filled thing with a title, you know, and, uh, you know, a fully described little object. This to me feels already felt nomadic in the very writing of it. It is something that takes place over time. You know, I start, I go out, I buy the paper, Vilma Monaco comes into my life, you know, and then I move on to lunch, to afternoon reading, to, you know, something else. So it's those traces of uh, here, the traces through the time of one 24 hour sequence that, you know, would indicate a, the a nomadicity. And it means the poem doesn't, cannot come, and you must know that as you read it, any section, the poem itself cannot come to some conclusion that would sum it all up, you know, that would round it up, that would go, you know. Uh, the structure of the 24 hours is, if you want, semi-fixed, because at the end of 24 hours, you're tired, you're going to sleep, but you're going to go on the next day, right? So you're going to have another move going. The, the classical nomad Arab poem uh, as a casida starts, oddly enough, with the past. That is, the poet halts his or her horse or camel at last year's campsite comes across it and sees, you know, the fire that died a year ago when he left and says, oh my God, here I was with her, with him last year. And that's called the atlal. It is kind of the little thing that awakens the desire to write and to make a poem, you know, and then comes the traditional poem, which has its own strange structure of um, additional adding lines and descriptions of this animals, of that hero, of this and this, right? And you get an open structure that, 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 that runs that way. In our case, or in my case, that nomadic thing happens or could happen in a way every morning as you get up and you go and sit at, you know, uh, last night's campfire, which is where you went to, you know, where you were sitting before you went to sleep, and you look maybe at the last line or as the last quote you underlined, you know, in your reading, and okay, get started there and, you know, move on with it. So, you know, the nomadic is an, uh, an uh, for me, the essential thing is the open-endedness of the nomadic. Uh, the fact that we don't come to a conclusion, you know, it's not a, a fixed. Yeah, open, 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 open. Yeah. You also say in uh, Nomad Poetics, your book of essays, 
that a nomadic poetics needs mindfulness. And uh, as you uh, read in the, the section at 9 a.m., you likened writing to prayer. When I think mindfulness, I think of Zen practice. I mean, similarities to prayer. Would you elaborate on what you, how you use that word mindfulness and how it applies in this poem? Well, mindfulness, I think, is really the attention you can give and you're supposed to give something. In that sense, I would even associate it with, at one level, with Robert Duncan's lovely way of calling, you know, responsibility, the ability to respond, you know, the ability to be mindful of what is coming to you, what is happening to you. So there is that, that is that, uh, again, there is a, a doubleness, a, a multiplicity in it, you know, it's not you, it's the world and you coming in. The other way that you associate it there in a way or with, with prayer, yesterday when I was introducing Paul Celan's poetry at the, for this big festi music festival really at the Jewish Museum in Manhattan, uh, I quote Celan who has kept his distance from the religious very much and says, yes, you know, you can associate poetry with prayer if you want in some way, but hey, more important to reflect on the fact, and Kafka did that, Kafka did that. And he said, yes, but writing comes first. You cannot do it with hands folded. I you had to be out there and do it. And I mean, I'm using that quote in, I can't remember, in I think Poesis, the volume of uh, Selected that uh, Wesleyan published, you know, as the, the, the quote out there. And that is very much, you know, my sense of this uh, also. Yeah, that, that quote does sound familiar. I came across it in my uh, research for this interview. Also in that 9 a.m. passage, you mentioned it. You talk about the death of Europe. If it was not dead then, Vladimir Putin probably has, has killed it off. You know, but I'm thinking of the time, 1986. It was not long after that that we had the fall of the Berlin Wall, that we had to talk about the peace dividend. Remember that? Um, <laughs> can, you, can you talk about how you, you think at the time you meant the death of Europe and, um, and is it really dead now? Or what, how, how would you relate it to current events? Yeah, I think it was, it's, you know, it had, it had quite started. To me, and as you see the French people I'm reading there, I'm quoting, you know, Bataille and so on. And I was, of course, reading a lot of theory at that time, uh, you know, in, in, in London or then uh, in 87, I moved back to the US, right? So this is just the year before. The death of Europe to me is really more the, even the, the, the death of Western civilization, you know, those inside of those limits of a Descartian pseudo-rationality, you know, all of those elements that uh, in a way in this country, and I, I mentioned earlier the 60s and all this, and you know, your interest in Zen in different areas, you know, the opening up towards those, those things was, I think, important as a possibility for what is the most outlying part of Western Civ, which is uh, America, you know, is the United States. Some, some might say Big Sur, California, where Robinson <laughs> Jeffers was, right? Well, listen, in 67, my first crossing after one year at 
one semester at Bard College, I drove with Stephen Kessler across the country for the first time, my Kerouacian dream, right? And we went to LA and I flew on to Hawaii for Christmas 67 to see a friend, an American I'd met in Paris and who's marrying his Swedish girlfriend. And I was to be the best man. And so I sat and I had his parents' garden house, which is a little Japanese house, you know, on a diamond head. And I sat there for three weeks and really thinking, am I going back to Bard College and to East Coast and what I really wanted, you know, American poetry and jazz? Or how about going from here to Piotto? Sid Corman is there. Gary Snyder is there, and I was reading, you know, a lot of Snyder and so on at that at, at that time. And then I said, no, I have not, I'm not done with my own, you know, origins and extensions and flew back via San Francisco, which you can imagine in the, uh, you know, the first week of 1968 was quite a scene, <laughs> you know. But there was that, in a way, that desire to move and to see and to investigate these various other possibilities, because it did seem to me, and it was clear as an European kid, if you want, that there was something deeply uh, and permanently wrong with that attitude. Even if I grew up just after the war and everybody was optimistic, you know, and everything was going to be much better from now on, uh, democracy was going to work. We knew now that we wouldn't, you know. And the death of Europe, very visible now, you know, and not only in Europe, as you just pointed out, where the profound fascistic right-wing, you know, from Putin all the way to Marine Le Pen, you know, and to the English too, and, uh, you know, yesterday, I think Andalusia became right-wing again, the most right-wing fascistoid party of, uh, run by a woman who's a great friend of Marine Le Pen's, you know, took over certain local things again. So, you know, all of that is happening. Just as in this country, the Republican Party has simply become a fascist party. Yeah, you know, there's no two ways around this. <laughs> you know, that's what it is. So the death of Europe is unhappily a very prolonged agony, and it may bring a lot of us, uh, you know, down with it. The death, the slow death of a thousand bullet holes to the neck, to paraphrase a, a section <laughs> of the poem. Yeah. There's a line in the 11 a.m. segment about shaking off the fathers. And of course, we've talked about Ezra Pound, Robert Duncan has come up, Charles Olson. Can you elaborate on that, um, shaking off the fathers? What do you mean by that? And have you been successful in, in shaking them off? Well, I, you know, funny way, I should let you judge that in relation to, uh, you know, uh, uh, going to Canto Diurno and then think of a pound canto, uh, you know, maybe, you know, oh, poetically it may not be as, as good, but, uh, but on the other time, Joris is doing something that's different, that's other, that doesn't have this, this, you know, I do hope that I have the openness. But checking off the fathers, we all have to do kind of all the time because, you know, the fathers are hanging over us, you know. And it's specifically the fathers in the sense that the mothers are much less engulfing, you know. I wish we had more mothers that we could rely on, be in the community with, you know, because it seems to me that it is those very constricted fathers 
in that European tradition, you know, that goes, you know, all the way from, uh, you know, the Greek heroes to uh, Putin. You know, all those male thing, uh, things. I wrote a piece recently uh, when I got a, an award in Luxembourg and uh, that started out talking about a dream. I woke up from a dream and in that dream there was Ithaca was mentioned. And I knew immediately it was not Ithaca, New York. Also li having lived in Albany, I was close to Ithaca and know it well, but it was the old Ithaca. And so I said, oh my God, no, have I again sort of myself as some kind of Ulysses going home to Ithaca? Because the Odyssey to me is, you know, this over male story. It's nearly like a bourgeois novel, you know, of the guy who goes out, uh, ha, you know, kills a lot of people in, in a war, innocent people who have nothing, you know, to do, and then goes home, but rather than go directly home to his wife, you know, he kind of hangs around, you know, screws here and there, lives a bit here, has disadventures, you know, whilst the wife sits home, you know, doing what she does, trying to fight off those dudes that are, that I want to, that want to take, take over, you know, and it's like the classic bourgeois novel, you know, the salesman <laughs> who goes out on the road, you know, and then uh, Dallas and Dallas and doesn't, doesn't, you know, doesn't come back. I think when I said that, when I read that in front of the, the literary hoi polloi, uh, no, well, yeah, of, of Luxembourg, uh, there was a little jump there. No, you can't say that about the great myth. Well, that's what it is. It's the myth, you know, that's the story told about how our culture heroes are supposedly function. Who would the mothers be then? Would it, would it be Marianne Moore? Would it be Lorene Niedeker? Uh, would maybe not Bernadette Mayer, she'd be more of a sister to you because of the, the a age. Sister. She's a sister, yeah, yeah. age-wise. Well, I think Marielle Rockheiser is somebody I am, you know, uh, always been very, very uh, both fond of and, you know, whose work I very much uh, liked in, in, in that sense. Uh, books that I've wanted and I've pushed people to republish, you know, her autobiography also, a uh, biography of Harriet, um, of one of the great first visitors to this, the, to this country. The Traces of Thomas Harriet. I don't know if you know that book at all. This is an old English edition. And, you know, that to me is one of the very splendid books. I have an old Victor Golan's uh, uh, edition of this. She is certainly, you know, would be somebody immensely important. But it is true that a couple of years ago, I was, I did a book, I don't know if you've seen that, uh, um, talks, uh, interviews with Adonis, the great Syrian poet, maybe, the, you know, the greatest Arab poet. Uh, writing, you know, poetry in Arabic at, uh, right now. We are friends from from years ago, and we were sitting around one day and said, well, what the Arab poets now don't really know very much what's happening in America, you know, and he knows French. He lives in Paris most of the time in, in exile, so French is his other language, not English. And I said, oh, maybe we sh I should put together a little anthology of American poetry right now. And, get, and we get it translated into Arabic. And he said, oh, that's a great idea. Didn't get to the full book, but when I sat down and put together, I had 30 women poets of the previous and mine and slightly uh, uh, younger generation. And I thought the idea of doing an American poetry anthology of only women into Arabic was kind of a great, I don't need to laugh. We had a great laugh 
uh, you know, about it. You know, there are people that, you know, they have sisters like Bernadette or Alice Nutley, you know, or Anne Waldman, you know, and actually Nicole Perafit, my companion, my wife, and I uh, just finished translating a selection of uh, Waldman's poetry that's coming out in a series that Habib Tongour does in Algeria. So, uh, you know, still moving those, those things around. There is a, a lot of amazing work. And, you know, I'm talking about three or four there, but you can go to Lynn Hygienian, you can go to, you know, uh, also women writers in other areas of contemporary American poetry. Joanne Kiger, Diane de Prima. Diane de, yes, I've actually been looking uh, for where uh, Bobby Louis Hawkins archives are, which I don't know, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, it would seem to me that that effort that you just spoke of and your eloquent, uh, speaking of Muriel Rukeyser, who's another person who I had it crossed my mind to mention to you. It, it would seem to me that this would be your effort at uh, helping to take down that patriarchal order that you talked about with uh, you know, uh, with, uh, you know, the Odyssey being the myth, what would be a different myth, for instance, and who knows what it's going to be, but it's efforts like that, that you're talking about, that are the, the little things we do to chop wood and carry water and to help figure out what's going to happen after patriarchy and this, this notion that going around and killing people is somehow heroic. So, um, so congratulations on that. And thank you. There was an, uh, a little I can that I want to point to also because one of the you know I'm I'm known here much for translating Ceylon, but I'm as much a fan and lover of the work of Ingeborg Bachmann. And Ingeborg and I wrote a play <laughs> that was performed by the Luxembourg National Theater in sixteen or seventeen I can't remember. It's called the Agony of I B the Agony of Ingeborg Bachmann. Bachmann went into a coma because she fell asleep with a cigarette, but she was also doped up on downers. This is like in the 70s, this is uh, those moments. And nobody, you know, uh, talked about it. So she was in a long coma before uh, passing. And in my play, she's visited in the coma by the three major people in her life. The second one of which is the composer is a composer, uh, the gay composer who uh, she really wanted to marry, but uh, they couldn't because, because of that. And they're supposed to write an opera on Orpheus and Eurydice. And she is saying, we have to, to change this. In my opera, when Eurydice comes up, it's not she who dies. It's the guy who dies because he cannot acknowledge the fact that the serpent and I were together. And then she just steps over him into the living world. The composer says, no, that's not possible. You can't change the myth of old. And Bachmann says, but myths are just stories that the mouse tells. So that is what you have to do. You have to bring them up to date. You have to change them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Also in the um, news section, uh, you suggest that poetry is a concordance of thought and language. There are allusions to William Carlos Williams in the poem, The Descent Beckons, etc. But um, he also wrote to figure out what he thought. So can you elaborate on the notion articulated here that the poem is a concordance of thought and language? 
if it is a concordance, I'm not absolutely sure because it can also di diverge, you know. Concordance is the possible successful meeting at one given moment, you know, where you get a wound and then it goes elsewhere and it looks again, it, it uh, you know, uh, it invents ways of moving forward again that may not be necessarily successful at every moment, uh, but that show the process of the thinking what we think with is language. There are no two ways uh, about this. And that means that we are continuously moving in between and that we have to be conscious. You know, and that's the poet's job, to be conscious of language, what language does to us and what we do to language. So this happens kind of uh, continuously. And for me, that was important to discover it and it was unavoidable discovering it early on when I decided to write in a language that was not the mother tongue. You know, because we always let you believe that the one language in which you can express yourself into in which you, you live is the language you learned on your mother's knees. You know, that is the truth. That is how, how you know, how this happened. Even Ceylon said something to that point. And uh, happily, I discovered that only 10 years after I started working on him and writing in English, I may have, you know, lost faith. But therefore, writing in, you know, what is really my fourth language made me from the beginning on very conscious that I had to be aware of this. And the person who, in a way, helped a lot, when I got here, I started to write in English in Paris, but I was still writing a kind of high school British English and imitation beat, uh, you know, because I live in Shakespeare and Company, so I'd read all, I'd read the beats and so on, you know. And then when I, at Bard, when I asked uh, the poet, who was the major poet there, who's still there, is Robert Kelly. And I, and I asked Robert, see, this is my dilemma. This is what I'm doing. I want to write in, in American English. You know, I'm still with this. What is the best way to get to the core of that language? And he didn't point immediately to writers also, you know, Pound and Olson and company would come uh, in, you know, in the next half hour. But what he said is, listen to baseball commentators. That is the most active use and interesting use of the American language happening right now, live. And so you have that oral tradition. And it's true. You know, I began doing this uh, and I've been a Mets fan ever since. Uh, <laughs> so there is that, there was that fascination with language of the way it was spoken and used and the richness of it, you know. And then comes the writing. And the next people he sent me to is Olson and uh, the Black Mountain people. So does that make a sense? It me? makes total sense. The baseball thing, of course, I'm happy to report the White Sox shut out the Angels today, three to nothing. So we're beginning <laughs> to get off the schneid at the beginning of the year. But there was an announcer who has passed away. He was the White Sox play-by-play -play radio guy at Farmer. And man, parataxis was his thing. He would say, uh, that's the third hit they have today, Kansas City has, or something like that would be the way he'd word sentences. And it kind of drove me crazy a little bit, uh, but that was his thing. And that was the way his mind worked. And there was a certain beauty in that. And of course, we, we shoot for parataxis quite often in the poem. So um, very interesting. 
I'm wondering, there seems to be a gap between about 3.30 and 6 p.m. in, in Canto Diurno. So was there a nap? Was there a long dinner? I mean, do you, do you remember? I do not remember. And maybe I was just tired after that noon work on Gustav Sobin's work, you know, and put things away, went out or, you know, went, did some shopping or something and yeah. didn't feel like putting a grocery list in there in the middle uh, right. that didn't seem to fit. Yeah. But uh, yeah, something like that. As Bernadette might, uh, you know, would have done in Midwinter Day. Did that have any effect on your thinking about writing this? I can't remember if uh, her, if that book specifically, which, uh, you know, which I knew, I knew Bernadette from New York in the, uh, in the very early 70s and so on, you know, when, when I first met her. But uh, I don't think that that, uh, that book specifically entered this. And that book was, in a, in a way, such an, a massive undertaking. And clearly, I am still more involved here with a kind of lyrical mode you know that goes down the page faster there is more of that nomadic going on whereas in uh, in bernadette's book it is solid prose nearly you know paragraphs it's an it's it's a uh, it's it's a different undertaking also of course it is related in terms of you know using that unit that 24-hour unit this was london living in south london which was very energizing in terms of the poet friends I had around. Alan Fisher, who was writing his long work place, you know, who's done long works that out distance uh, <laughs> most, most writing of my generation. And Eric Mottram, the critic and teacher and poet friend was living not far away. So there was a certain surround also of, of, of South London that gave me that space in which to both um, say, think of the French, you know, I'd go to Paris and bring back the latest Blanchot book or something, and then I could quietly sit in London, you know, read it and work on it, uh, talk of it, uh, talk about it with Mottram and Fisher and friends. So it's, I, yeah, I, you know, I don't remember exactly what I was directly reading, except for what comes into here. Clearly, I was working on Ceylon. Uh, also, you know, besides reading the, the French theorists and so on, I was looking a lot at Gustav Sobin's work, you know, who was one of our very, very fine lyrical poet in that sense. And in those days, I meet with Gustav in Paris a couple of times. He would come up from his place where he was in Renéchard country down in the south of France. But he'd come up to do readings and we'd sit around, have, you know, eat and talk poetry. So that was more my direction there. Or what kind of an effect did writing this poem in a day have on your own poetry practice? Did it, did it change things? Well, uh, one, it made me very happy to have gotten a kind of poem of that size, you know, in, in the big said, yes, when I saw that, yes, this, co this coheres while being open-ended, you know, I mean, that, again, that frenzy, yeah, I like this. Now, what can I do with this? Oh, I don't want to, however, go on tomorrow and write another, you know, diary poem and write 117 or however many. So 
I had the idea that I would do a whole book called Canto Diurno with a whole bunch of these, but I did not set myself up to use specific days or whatever. And, you know, other stuff happened. And uh, eventually, years later, in some time, must be the early 90s. So, you know, um, I was in Albany already. And I decided to drive out to Lowell, Mass, uh, to go and lay a flower on Kerouac's grave, right? And I took notes and I wrote one poem that became uh, Contra Duna number two, visiting, uh, you know, visiting Kerouac's, Kerouac's grave, driving, driving all the way from Albany uh, on and, you know, uh, that is um, yeah, another kind of ten pager of, of you know of, of that order. Note was written in June '99, early 2000, and then a few other poems happened that I kind of spent a day working out. And they could be in different sections, but very different things. And said, "Oh yes, this is also a canto journal." And then I thought, well, maybe I should put together a volume of my Cantor Diurnos, you know, but that would have been in a way um, constricting. So I didn't do it. And then a French friend, Jean Portant, who was editing a selected poems of mine in French, thought that this would be a great title for the French selected poems. And so uh, <laughs> now you have it here. Cantodiono selected poems, and, but that one has only one Cantodiono actually in it. So it's a different, again, a different, um, uh, a different book. But I like that. I, you know, I, I like the discoherency and the coherency that goes along with it. You know, it's a little nomadic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's that's yeah. the whole. That's the point. Has the vanguard of world poetry moved from the epic to the serial? I would have to say so. Yes, I would agree that that is that that is happening. I mean, the uh, the epic is, you know, we talked earlier about the Odyssey, you know, and the Iliad clearly even more visibly, you know, a kind of male warring uh, heroic uh, uh, adventure story. Or you know, I mean, I've been seeing the ads for Norseman, the movie that's coming out, you know, and then we got again a major Viking slayer, you know, coming to do revenge things. So, oh my God! Well. Maybe it's okay in the movies. Nobody needs to write it any longer, you know, as a major, as a poem. Although it says something about our culture, right? So, I don't know. I lost your question. It was towards the serial. Um, things are moving oh, towards the, the serial. serial. Yeah. yeah. And then, well, and then the follow-up question would be: Who's writing in long form today that you admire and would recommend to people? Oh, I mean, you know, the first person who comes to mind, his three volumes just out, are sitting here, is Nathaniel Mackey. You know, I'm kind of in the middle of the second volume uh, of, you know, of that, of that sequence, of that amazing sequence that he keeps going, which is, an, 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 uh, you know, you can discuss what it is in terms of seriality and so on. Uh, but yes, that, you know, that is very much there. All day music, as he says in the introduction to the first of those, he wanted right, right. To, to have his days where they were all about music and uh, poetry, and, and that's what came out. Something longer than the cantos and written in 34 years 
less time than Ezra Pound. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's, uh, so yeah, no, Nate is to me, you know, really uh, essential there as, as someone doing that kind of work. Fair enough. A real joy to connect with you and to have intimate access to your thoughts like this. I am very grateful. I'm grateful for all that you've done for world literature. You're a really amazing human being and, and, uh, and poet and uh, artist. And uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Paul. Great occasion. Cascadian Profit supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the Eastern Missouri Breaks and Western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at CascadianProfits.org. Org. Cascadian Profits is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at cascadiapoeticslab.org.